Also, I, now that I have to like edit everything anyway, we can start and not me pointing saying go. Sure. But I'm the one that's leading now, right? So yeah. you are. And I was thinking about this the other day. We probably do need to really introduce ourselves at the beginning of every episode because we don't necessarily always have the same people. I don't like people. I know you don't like people. Okay. We'll do that. Okay. This is why I stopped being a local church pastor is because I. Right. Right. Well, I was just thinking like remnant radio. They always introduce themselves and probably. This is why women are supposed to stay silent in church. (laughs) (laughs) Jerk. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Here we go. Welcome, everybody. This is going to be our eighth lesson in the encounter for this uh, winter quarter. Uh, We're. Here again, I'm going to introduce myself just in case we have some new listeners and new people tuning in. My name is Chris Fleming. I am the director of adult ministries for the ministry council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Um, And and I am the editor of this this curriculum that you're you're using. And so um, glad that you're with us. I'm going to give Reverend Becky a chance to introduce herself and then we'll go on with our lesson. Hi, everyone. I'm Reverend Becky Zardi, and I am the Director of Ministry with Women for the Ministry Council at the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And so, like I said, Lesson 8 will be for January 23rd, 2022. It's going to be John Chapter 3. This is the this is a chapter that makes all Cumberland Presbyterians rejoice. Whosoever will. Um, our prayer for illumination today. God of life, you send your spirit that we may have life and have it abundantly. Send the Spirit today that we may experience that life as we study these ancient words. Give us wisdom and discernment as we read and discuss and apply these lessons to our hearts that we may apprehend the great truth of new birth in Christ. Amen. Amen. And of course, John 3, 1 through 16 is going to be our uh, lesson that we talk about. And instead of making it easy on everybody for a week, because everybody knows John 3, 16 already, I'm assuming, uh, we did John 3, 7. Do not be astonished that I've said to you, you must be born from above. And that's that. And so our introduction, Becky, um, mm-hmm. like the discussion question. I'm just going to tr- start with the discussion yeah. question. When you see the John 3, 16 signs, what do you feel? Do you feel proud or confused? Have you ever taken one to a game, a sporting gun or anything? If so, what was the response from the people around you? When you have a situation you just can't figure out, who do you turn to for help? And would you or ha- would you or have you felt embarrassed to get help or to get help understanding something? You can take those in parts or just pick up one sure. thing there or whatnot. There's a lot power packed into that that little section of discussion question. So when I see John 316 signs, how do I feel? Hmm. I, you know, I, I think that's a double-edged sword. Um, because I'm a pastor and I understand the context in which the verse is given. Uh, but at the same time, I realize that it opens the door of discussion. And so is there is there's that balance of I love that you're sharing God's word and I love that people are wanting to share God's word. And I hope and pray that by seeing John 316 somewhere, uh, maybe that would pique somebody's curiosity that they would dive deeper into scripture and open the Bible and recognize that the context of which the scripture is taken. 
So, you know, I don't know. Have I ever taken one to a game? No, because I've never been to a sporting event. So there we go. Um, sure. I don't don't hurt me. I, I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, but then he asked the other discussion. The other part of that is, have you ever had a situation where you can't figure something out? And who do you turn to for help? Have you ever felt embarrassed? I, you know, there's something interesting in that. Cause I was thinking as we read through this introduction about asking questions about getting help. Um, and I don't know why or where it changed in society. And, and maybe Chris, maybe, you know, we have this mentality, like our generation and younger, I've noticed, especially like even amongst my, my, my own children is they feel like if they start a new job, they're already supposed to have all of this knowledge. And then if they have to ask a question that they shouldn't have to ask a question because that information should already be there. And I don't know when that changed. Like, when did we, when did we assume that everybody should already know all this information because learning is a lifelong journey. Um, so have I been embarrassed to get help? Yeah. When I was younger, because I had that same mentality of, well, I should, I should know how to do this already. And I, and I don't, but as I've gotten older, I keep telling my kids, the older I get, the dumber I get. Cause when I was in my twenties, I had all the answers. You could just ask me and have an answer for everything. But now that I'm in my forties, I'm like, Hmm, I don't know. And it's okay to say that. I don't know. And it's okay to ask questions because I, I don't know. And I don't know why somebody would think that I should know if I don't ask if questions. Don't so, cause I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the other way you get an answer answer is if you ask the question. So yeah. So I hope that maybe seeing John three sixteen somewhere would spark somebody and give them the opportunity to ask a question like, well, what exactly does that mean? And I hope that through this lesson that our, our people that are learning this today will have a better understanding of what that means in the context that it was written in. Um, so I have you? something I play that I, I call it playing the stupid card. Um, because I've found it to be the most uh, useful way of p- getting people to help me. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's the IRS all the way down to like ordering food from McDonald's. If I have no idea what I'm doing, I usually start the conversation by saying, I'm an idiot. I don't want to be. Can you help me? <laughs> it's just hey. an easy way to get. And then for whatever reason, they're like, oh, this poor soul. He, he is stupid. Let's help him out. All right. And so it works. That's um, hilarious. I think it works well. And, and it's true <laughs> most of the time. Um, so funny enough, though, I know two people who have actually, they can at least pinpoint to uh, a John 3.16 sign as their starting of conversion, right? And so, so and, and I've learned the Lord can work anywhere, but, you know, if you stay silent, probably won't, right? So sure. one of the reform doctrines is that, um, is that conversion happens when you, through witness in the word, right? Witness word in the Holy Spirit. So if the word is preached and, the, and you're a witness and the Holy Spirit uh, is, is with it, that's when conversion happens, like, right? Um, it's like the Damascus Road. I use that as an example. Paul didn't just out of the blue have this experience of God. He had studied for years and years and years. Um, and so when the opportunity came, he knew the word. He knew Christ or Christ presented himself. And uh, that's when that happened. So anyway, and then the other thing about John 3.16, I mean, we get too theological for our own good sometimes. It's just like every single business, every single church has a motto 
a mission statement, um, whatever you want to call it, something really like uh, one of the churches here, Mount Sterling Church. Um, they came up with a mission or, a, I don't know, mission statement, vision statement, whatever you want to call it. But it, they are a church in the heart of the community with a heart for the community. And and um, I say that because, I mean, like, it's just a way of describing who you are very quick. And and like when you say that images come to mind and you think, oh, maybe I want to be a part of that. Sure, so sure. John 316, so it's, it's, it's a sign. It's their elevator pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Elevator pitch. Yes. The elevator pitch. Every good organization needs an elevator pitch. That's true. Uh, They do need an elevator pitch. So, but, but anyway, the point being is, is that John 316 is, it's a, you know, don't, we don't have to be snotty about things. I mean, I used to look down. I remember when I was younger and I was on fire for Jesus and I was in Bible college. I'm like, oh, why don't they do that? These people, you know, but then I think what's it hurting? Right. You know? Like I yeah, wished yeah. I was that passionate about evangelism or things sure. as him. So, so that's how I do it. That's how I see that. Anyway, I agree. I agree. Um, so that, so John three sixteen, it's a good thing. I, I don't mind. Lord have mercy. I don't mind. And so, like often, what it does is just as you see a John three sixteen sign. Maybe somebody says, "What is that?" Because we we are becoming increasingly yeah. in a world where people honestly don't know what John three sixteen is. In fact. I would say, what is the wrestler? Steve Austin. I think there was like a Stone Cold 316. What was there? There was a wrestling sign. And there's a certain generation that would know that much more than they would John 316. And so just like in in the in the gospel selection here, Nicodemus came to Jesus to explore what he was, who he was. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you'd have that opportunity, that John 316 thing. Somebody might say, what is that? Yeah. And it, it opens it opens that door of opportunity. It opens that just peaks the curiosity to say, hey, let's dive a little deeper into this. What exactly does this mean? Yeah. And so that's hoorah. Yeah. Um, all right. So if we want to move on then from there, good uh, this is a good lesson. And I and I like it, the uh, it is a really good lesson. So the exploring the scripture, the historical and contextual setting. Uh, this is, uh, setting up Nicodemus coming to Jesus. And so then I'll let you jump in first mm-hmm. and then we'll figure out how we, I can- really liked how Kip put in here, uh, with Nicodemus coming at night and he, he poses some questions about maybe some cultural things that have happened, um, or things that commentators have said, you know, that is this a symbolic representation of closeted early Christians who feared being ostracized? Is it because it's a metaphor for ignorance, sin, and confusion in John's gospel that he comes at night? But then he also talks about the the cultural representation that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and they often studied in the evening and pondering the law. And so because he was accustomed to this, is this why he came to Jesus in in the cover of darkness was that he wanted to understand who Jesus was better? So that's some really... You know, John, uh, from one point, John is full of symbolic imagery. Yes. Um, so it could be the symbolic imagery that uh, Nicodemus is coming at night because, because he's, you know, not sure and he's trying not to be seen by the rest of the Pharisees and, and wanting to understand who Jesus was better. I mean, that, that is a possibility. It is a possibility that because he was used to studying at night, that's when he came to talk to Jesus. I mean, there's all, 
all of that, but it doesn't matter which, which one it is really. I mean, that doesn't affect um, the telling of the text. It's he's coming to understand who Christ is. And then he uses, Kip uses this great word. I love this word because it's a word that I didn't understand what it was for a long time. Eisegesis. 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 What is this eisegesis? It's the process of interpreting a text or portion of text in such a way that the process introduces our own presuppositions, agendas, or biases into and onto the text. And he says in layman terms, it means reading our preconceived ideas into the text. <sighs> Soapbox for just a minute. We have <laughs> too many televangelists that people are following out there that love these televangelists that eisegete text instead of actually giving you what the text is saying. They're reading their own interpretation into the text and telling you, oh, this means that God, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, I'm going to challenge you today for all of those that are listening to please not eisegete, but exegete the text properly and understand the context and what it was written to the people that it was written to and why it was written so that you can better understand the meaning of the text, which is what we're doing through the encounter lessons. That's right. Just um, a plug for the encounter. So yeah, so the, the televangelists are a good, good way of thinking this is how we eisegete a text, right? Yeah. Um, the way it works specifically in this passage is Nicodemus as a Pharisee mm-hmm. had a preconceived notion of what the Messiah would be. Yep. Therefore, he couldn't understand Jesus as Messiah. Right. Because what so, their idea of the Messiah was at that time was somebody that was going to come in, different. was going to raise up an army, was going to take over, kick out the Romans. And that's not that's not what Jesus did. Obviously, we know that. But that's not what they were thinking the Messiah was at that time. So I do think, though, uh, John is careful. I, I, so I do think there is something to saying Nicodemus came at night. Because in the first part of, you know, that John chapter one, you have this, the light and the dark and you have death and you have life and you have, and John is intentional. Like he juxtaposes being blind with seeing, right? These kinds of things all throughout the text. Uses all that good symbolic imagery through his writing. And so now what the symbology exactly was, I'm not going to be as prominent about. I do think there's an element because Kip will mention later on, I think it's later on in this lesson that you see this progression where Nicodemus came by night, then Nicodemus kind of half-heartedly defends Jesus, and then he he says he goes and says, "Hey, let's let's prepare him for burial in in broad daylight, yes. right?" Yes. And so there's a progression uh, that happens there. But also, John is playing up darkness and light, physical birth, new birth, or heavenly birth, right? And mm-hmm. so there is a sense, and maybe it's just a confusion. He's using this to say, you come to Christ in confusion because we all do. None of us know our elbows from our heads when we come to Jesus. Uh, But then Jesus then is a way in which we understand truth and we learn how to come from darkness to light. So that could be it as well. Sure. So there's some possible things. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think what I would bring up then when we talk about the cultural religion of the time usually has less to do with with actual faith and religion. So like when we eisegete something, the Pharisees understood religion a certain way. They were culturally Jewish, but they couldn't see the Messiah when the Messiah came. We have that today too, as we have a lot of cultural Christians. And in fact, that's kind of why the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was born. You get to a point in the Presbyterian Church that people went to church 
and it was basically just this study or people pontificating about theology and the religion wasn't a heart religion. It, you were able to stay, you know, we, so the Cumberland Presbyterians come around and they have, you know, a much more exciting service. And it wasn't just for the sake of exciting, but they were applying truths to the life of an individual. Being culturally a Christian wasn't good enough. You had to have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion couldn't stay cold. It had to be this warm feeling in you that motivated you to love God more and love your neighbors more, which is what then it means to be born from above, right? It's not just checking off boxes, but it's loving Christ. And so um, that's kind of why the CP church was born. That's why John 3.16, well, that and, you know, the... Uh, the whosoever will part where mm -hmm. a, a little break from the Presbyterians. We, we dropped that uh, idea of fatalism uh, to where the gospel can be presented to every individual. And it's a heart religion, not just a head religion, right? Cultural religion. So that's, so I think Kip did a really good job on that. And I think, uh, I think that's, that's important that we know it's a fervor that we've sometimes lost in the Cumberland Presbyterian church too. Uh, or Christianity, yes. mainline churches have lost that. Uh, we become referees of culture a lot, um, and we throw yeah. around Bible verses, but we fall short maybe of preaching to the heart for a conviction of the heart so that people love Christ deeply and their neighbor. I, you know, honestly, I think that's kind of what we're seeing today in the declining church amongst Caucasian Americans um because it became just this rote ritual routine thing that you did and not behavior based for sure yeah not that it changed you it's just an external thing that you did yeah you know yeah we've become moralists a little bit yeah yeah and that's anathema to the gospel jesus yeah. wants to change you from yes. the inside out Yes, it's it's that being born from above. It's it's that new that new life that that you get, and I think that's uh, where maybe we're in the middle of that paradigm shift here in the United States of America. That we were at that place where we're recognizing as a church, and I'm going to say church as a whole, the mainline church here in the United States, that we have allowed it to become just something you do and not something that changes you from the inside out so we'll rile up everybody here but i think it's a danger i'm not saying that it's happening i'm just saying maybe if you look at the church maybe there's a lot of energy being pushed toward a way to think about politics or society and not a lot about repentance submission and love of christ and so, like, I think in the conservative circles, it's a push toward certain um, politics and certain, you know, exclusions of things or whatnot. And then on the liberal side, it's the um, it's the politics and it's this playing on grace more than holiness too. like, right. So, uh, when I say liberal, maybe I'll say progressive, but whatever. There's just a danger in that. That's what cultural religious religions do. They push people to movements and ideologies and less to God in Christ. So we got to be careful on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Maybe. I and can... I think, 
I think Kip says that and on the top of page 53, he says, one thing is clear in Jesus's words. You must start all over again, make a new beginning, but the beginning is not your own doing. It must be God's work in you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I'm going to go ahead and push this a little in the third. So the next paragraph is the third misunderstanding in this conversation comes when Jesus says that he must be lifted up. We'll talk about this later, but Mm -hmm. when Nicodemus was thinking being lifted up. He was thinking of being Jesus lifted up high and mighty in power. And Jesus yeah. was talking about being lifted up on a cross. And so, right. That's right. pretty tough. Yeah. Cause Nicodemus was still in that mindset that if you are the Messiah, you're going to, you're going to come in and take over and yeah. kick Roman butt and reestablish the Jewish nation. Yeah. Um, I like the discussion question. It says, are there passages of scripture you read as an adult that you saw differently as a child? I think this goes oh in with what gosh. I was saying. And one of the things, one of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain. Mark Twain once said, it's not the things of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do understand that bother me. He was being snarky. But as I've grown up, the things that like turn the other cheek, cliche when I was younger, then I got married and I had a family and children and they hurt you. And how do you respond in grace and love and kindness or, and then when I think pick up your cross and follow me. It's easy to wear a necklace, much harder than to like self-sacrifice when need be. Right. So like, yeah. um, And I think that applies to what we were saying about cultural Christianity. Like it's one thing to say, yes, you should do all these right things. And it's another thing to be a disciple and live in the world and minister. Actually do them. Yeah. It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, how do you offer grace and peace to somebody who's just insulted you and insulted everything that you believe in and who you are as a human being? Yeah. Tough. And how do you refrain from doing it sometimes when you get mad and, and you see a tweet or a post and you just want to unload on somebody? And how do you just not just not? Yeah. So it's hard. I mean, but that's part of being born again is the struggle, the struggle of the flesh and, and at least acknowledging that I'm not good at this. I'm going to get better. And that's repentance. And all that. yes. Amen. Right? Woo. Stepping on toes today. We are getting deep. We're getting deep. Well, since we're getting deep, let's dig deeper. <laughs> uh, let's compare scripture to scripture. And this is a good one. So, yeah. Um, so a lot of times, John 3, 16, people know that tag, you know, like, um, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But there's a context to that, that people might not know. And it comes from the Old Testament in numbers. And so very quickly, uh, as people are, you know, complaining to God constantly about how they'd rather be like slaves in Egypt than to die going to a promised land. And finally, God's right. like, all right, snakes, snakes on all of you. Yeah. <laughs> and so God sends snakes on the people and the snakes bite people and people are dying. And then they're like, ah, maybe we overstepped our bounds. And they go to Moses and be like, hey, tell this, tell this God of yours, you know, like, hey, we'll serve him. Just don't stop, stop, just stop this. And, uh, so the response to God or the response of God is he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent in the image of the serpents that are biting and, and killing the, uh, the people, the people. And then he says, lift it up. And everybody who looks upon that bronze serpent will be saved in a sense. They, they won't die. All right. So that's the context of what, uh, of what we get from John three sixteen when he talks about, Uh, being lifted up. I think, I don't think it's in John three. Where's it? When Christ says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men into myself. Hold on. 
That's a good question. I should know this right off. It's John 12. So it's actually in John 12 where Jesus says that, but he uses the same imagery just as he uses it in John 3, 16. He uses it in John 12. And he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw them in unto myself. And it was the same Mm -hmm. uh, story in numbers. Um, So Kip then talks about um, how this creates newness or whatnot. But I, I I think what we have to do in order to understand this context is to go just slightly deeper where God tells Moses to create the image of that which is causing suffering in the Hebrews, which was the bronze serpent. And when the bronze serpent is lifted up, then people can look and they're saved from death, but they're still getting bit, but the poison is not killing them. If you bring it over then into the New Testament, Jesus then is lifted up. And when people look to or believe in him, they are saved. Sin still reigns in this world. We still mess Mm -hmm. up. But as we look to the risen Christ, we don't feel the effect of that. Now, go one step further. It was the poison and the, and the act of being bit that was killing people. In the New Testament, Paul says something along the lines of, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ was being treated as the curse that was killing humanity. It was sin. It was evil. He became that so that we might then become the righteousness of God. And now that's the full context of that passage. And it's, it sheds a lot of light on the atonement that we talk about often or the -hmm. purpose of Christ and so on. Mm -hmm. Tag your it. Ah! Well, my goodness. Yeah. So that whole concept, if, if we really get deep into that is an understanding that we still live in sin. We still have sin. The effects of sin still bother us in our, in our daily life. But as long as we're looking to the risen Christ, as long as we're looking at him who became that sin hanging on the cross, then the effects of the sin, like the effects of the poison, will not kill us that we're going to live even though we're still suffering the consequences of that sin here on this earthly realm we're we're going to live though we're going to live through christ who has become our redeemer and it's and it's it's that new again it goes back to that new birth that we have to become born from above so we become form. So this is like so. So again, I will say this: like one atonement theory probably will not control everything. So this leads to like the reform theology of like justification, to where in reform theology, as opposed to Catholic theology, like in Catholic theology, you you're baptized and you're quick into life, and throughout life, you're becoming a little more righteous as you go through the sacraments and through your duties of the church and what on. So like John Calvin or Martin Luther, Martin Luther would describe Christian righteousness. So anyway, you become righteous in a sense. You can attain some level of righteousness in the, in, in the Catholic understanding of things. So Martin Luther explained justification and our righteousness by talking about if before snow, right, you look out on a field and cows have just dung is everywhere. That's us. Just we're, we're full of dung and it's nasty and it looks nasty. But overnight, a snow comes in and it's blanketed with snow. And when you look out, it's pristine. It's beautiful. It's untouched. 
it's back to a true, but underneath they're still dung, right? And so sure. in some sense, in that reform type theology, you have this to where you're always evil, but because of the work of Christ, you're declared righteous. And then the Holy Spirit in us then begins to work. And, and so, but we're always terrible. Uh, and then you have these in-between theologies or whatnot, but uh, so different atonements, but, but this, it's still Jesus's death did something and, and took away sin and the consequences of evil ultimately. Right. Because ultimately we will have life through him. Praise right. God. Amen. For that grace and that beauty that he bestows upon our poor, poor, wretched souls. For uh, sure. and I guess maybe the discussion question we talked about a little bit. Um, well, first the symbolism, when you think of the cross, mm-hmm. what do you feel? I won't go into it unless you want to go into it, but I mean, it should, it does invoke something. Yeah, um, it should. It should. I mean, for some people, it might invoke rage because they don't like it. For other people, it might invoke guilt because they feel like they're never going to live up. For some people, it might be joy because Christ mm-hmm. has saved them, right? And so yeah. that's something to think about. Um, yeah. But then the term born again or new birth or born from above, I, do you think that there's any, I'm sure if you want to park there and really think about it, is there any difference in the two or do you just kind mm. of accept those things? I kind of, I kind of just go with the interchangeableness of the two. I think, I don't think I separate them anyway. I think being born again and new birth, it's, it's all about that, that continual renewing of the mind and the continual renewing of the self through the works of Christ on the cross and allowing God to work in me through my life as I change, um, Cause we're going to get into that, but we're always changing. We're always growing and hopefully we're always learning. And I think that's what we get in the, in the next section, but yeah, I think they're interchangeable. So speaking of the next section, the witness of the church, there's a good yeah. discussion here about faith. And I have yeah. another phrase that I've turned, but I'm going to let you go. Oh, okay. It's a really good one. Yeah. I really liked this learning from the scripture section. I think kept did a fantastic job because he talks about through this whole thing that Nicodemus came to Christ and he heard what Jesus had to say, but he wasn't really listening to what he had to say because Nicodemus came with his own level of presupposition, his own understanding of what he thought the Messiah was going to be. So he heard what Jesus was telling him about, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be, but he wasn't really listening to what Jesus was telling him, which is why I think Jesus had to keep saying, no, it's this. No, it's this. No, How can you be you a teacher to. of the law and not understand? Uh, yeah, because because Nicodemus wasn't listening. He just heard the words that Jesus was saying, but wasn't really listening to what Jesus meant through that. And I think we like Nicodemus. Yeah, you know, as a kid, I, I understood scripture to mean one thing. And, and of course, your teacher's Uh, do the best that they can. But when you're a child, you know, you have a limited understanding because you don't have all the worldly experience. And I understood the scriptures to mean one thing and see it from one perspective. But as I'm growing, as my relationship is deepening, my relationship with Christ is changing because I'm no longer just hearing. I am, I am now listening to what he has to say. 
And I love this paragraph that Kit put in here. This, this is just fire. It's on the top of page 55. It says, God is always calling us into deeper relationships. So discipleship never lets us stay where we are. As people of faith, we are likely required to leave our places of comfort. Honestly, if we are comfortable in life, we don't care to discuss being born anew or from above or again, because it indicates change. It suggests that we might have to give up something. Why should we change something deep inside ourselves when our present lives and present situations are just fine? If we want a relationship with Jesus Christ, we need to prepare for change. And to me, that that whole paragraph is just, that is fire. Because is. that is something that we struggle with. The, Completely. You know, as human beings, we don't like change. But at the same time, it's the only consistent thing in our life is yep. change. That's it. I mean, we're constantly changing. I'm not a baby anymore. I, I'm not old and feeble yet. I'm on my way, but you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. Speak and which is, <laughs> it's just continuous change. It's continuous growth. It's continuously deepening that relationship with Christ. We should be wanting to study the scriptures more and wanting to go deeper in our understanding, because that's how we stop just hearing what Jesus has to tell us and actually listening to what he has to say. And I love, I love that. I love that Kip put that in there. I won't take two. Well done, Kip. Yeah. Well done, Kip. Well done, Becky. Um, so like this, this understanding of belief or trust, like so often we, we have this sense in which we call people to repentance and believe in Jesus Christ. They popped up from the grave. This is what I call Jack in the box. Jesus. It's like pop goes to Jesus. And then like, that's it. Like, as long as you believe that he popped up out of the grave, everything's cool. But that's foreign. That is completely foreign to the gospel. It is an, you know, like in James, I think it's James, maybe it's John. I forgot which one, one of the epistles of John, where you believe, you know, in Jesus, great. Even the demons do that. There's a sense in which there's just, there's something more. The gospel is calling to you to than just, that Jesus popped up like a jack-in-the-box. And, and it comes where Kip is saying, it's the sense in which we give up ourselves. It's not necessarily a behavior, although you may have to give up a behavior. It's not just one thing or just all the terrible things about you. I remember reading this in C.S. Lewis when, when, when he talks about God claims your whole life, not just your bad habits. He wants everything that you are. And yes. so it's you give up you and all of your preconceived notions. And that hurts because there's some things you might like about you and you can sure. justify if you want to, but if you've given yourself up in submission to God and then God reworks you like a piece of clay, it's actually pretty scary. It's terrifying. Real terrifying. It's, but isn't that, doesn't that apply then to the greatest commandment to love God with all that you are, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You. Because if you, if you really do that, if you really do that, then God will rework you like yeah. a piece of clay, It's which just is absolutely when terrifying. When you think about it, it is. When it, you think it, about it, it, it is scary. Very oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, absolutely terrifying because you have, you, you grow up and in our secular world, you know, of course we're like, I don't know. Why do we do this? When we ask five-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
Like how many things have they really been exposed to in life at the age of five that they would have a good definition of what they want to be when they grow up? You know, I mean, everybody wants to be a train conductor or a cowboy. There we go. You know, because it's fireman. Fireman's awesome. Because it's awesome. You know, I mean, right. But when you give all of your being and really take those great commandments that Jesus gave us to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you truly do that, then you understand and recognize that every vision that you had of your life and what you think it ought to be. And it over. That's tough. It's gone. It's gone. And you are now laying yourself in the hands of a God who will remake and rework everything about you into something that he wants. And that takes time. I don't care what people say. You might have an instant change. (laughs) Lifelong journey. You might have an instant change of allegiance. Sure. During like a sermon or maybe a a conversion moment, but that ain't it. Like I don't love it. You keep Mm -hmm. going lifelong journey very good that's very challenging so if you're a sunday school teacher you might want to park there give people an opportunity to talk about how they changed like that's the discussion question yeah does your opinion of nicodemus change when you find out what happens later in the gospel of john of course you see him gradually coming to a more passionate or a more convicted Mm -hmm. uh, stance for jesus yeah Um, that progression that you were talking about earlier Faith is a lifelong journey. How has your faith changed over time? Has there ever been a time when you searched and searched and not found the answer you were looking for in regards to your faith or scripture? Those times are just as important as the ones that are right in front of you. It's it's great to grasp when you experience a miraculous healing from God or some grace in your sure. life. But there's also like Book of Job or Ecclesiastes to where faith formation happens in doubt too, when you don't understand. Absolutely. Or, or you don't want to. You know, I mean, cause sometimes like in Jonah, God calls you to something that you really don't want to do, Yeah, pass. but it's hugely, it's hugely important. And, and there's a purpose and a reason behind it. And those are really tough moments as well. Yeah. yeah. So, like I said, I think it's worth exploring if you're a teacher teaching that uh, this week, or if you're just following along by yourself, I mean, you know, take, take time to think about these things because you'll find that it's the high moments that maybe changed you a little bit, but it was also those deep low moments when you put them before God that also changed or formed or shaped who you are. Sure. All right. So let's apply the scripture. Let's bring this airplane home. Whoop, whoop. Let's, let's so Nic- Nicodemus was a seeker. I love that. I love how he started that out, that Nicodemus was a seeker who's looking for the truth and he hopes he will find answers from Jesus. And isn't that exactly what we are today? Yeah, maybe. No, I don't know. I would bring that up. Yes, we are if we try, but I think we're increasingly coming to a point to where people aren't, aren't Nicodemus. They're not even coming in the, in the, in near dark. They're not coming in dark to just try to question their own presuppositions. Uh, Again, I think Mm -hmm. that goes back to, we've got to be careful because I think we're becoming more and more so sure about what we believe and we don't even start to question whether we, whether there's a better or more fuller understanding of what we, what we already know, we're satisfied with what we know and we don't want to go anywhere. So I give kudos to Nicodemus, even if he wasn't listening or understanding at the time he came to Jesus. Yeah. None of the other Pharisees did, or at least it's not mentioned. They were sure right in their, in their understanding, but Nicodemus went out and said, maybe there's more. 
yeah, he was looking. He was looking for the truth. He didn't maybe didn't understand the truth at that time, but he was looking for the truth. What what is that? And then Kip really gets into. I, I love how he says this. Most of us have had the experience of starting something new and feeling like we have no idea what we're doing. Has anybody else ever felt like that? Am I the only well, one? Well, I've heard people do that. Listen, listen. <laughs> Start a new job, become a parent for the first time, took up a new pastime, joined a new group. And at that point, and we realize, hmm, maybe I really don't know everything I think thought i knew yeah that's when you seek the truth that's that's the that's the beauty in it is is when you as a human being acknowledge that you don't have all the answers but you're going to look and find some answers yeah humility is a a great value in scripture yeah yeah absolutely it's a beautiful Um, beautiful moment so I, I just highlighted, I love Tom Long. If you've never had an opportunity to listen to Tom Long preach, have you ever? I have not, okay. no. So when we get off here, get on YouTube and just type in Tom Long ser- Tom Long sermons and just any of them are good. He's just good. Okay. You're really good. Awesome. Cool. One of the best, cool. like great. Anyway, uh, so Kit brings up this illustration about how this, you know, real scholarly church or whatnot. Um, ain't nothing wrong in being scholarly. As long as you also don't give up the piety. In fact, good piety and good scholarship might actually be good for you. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, the church is more than just knowledge. It's compassion and action. It's yes. As um, James. James. Don't be yeah. just hearers of the word. Yeah, but doers, but doers. Also. Um, and then like Memphis Theological Seminary. I mean, I think they've got their motto. Piety, scholarship. And what is it? Piety, scholarship and justice. Right. In a sense, these are the these are the footings. Like we we do want to not just be theological for the sake of theology. You you're theological to inform how you live to fulfill that great commandment you brought up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't like that. Absolutely, I I love that last quote from that Tom Long sermon. You cannot prove the promises of God in advance, but if you live them they're true everyone yeah that's very good very good i love that yeah i love that it's amazing to think about to think about that and kip has some great reflection in this one if you're a sunday school teacher this is a great moment especially in your church context setting to ask yourself these questions you know and what times do you experience god best when things are greater in the darker moments but what is your church doing to live out the gospel that's a great question to ask yourself in, in the Sunday school. What, what is your church doing? How does it live out the gospel every day? Could you do it better? And how are you sharing the love of God in the world? I think those are great questions to ask your group. Yeah. Very much. All right. You got anything else there, Reverend Becky? I think I'm good. Good, good uh, discussion questions and good great lesson. lesson. Kip, yeah. good job. Really appreciate the thoughts you brought. Um, so I will end us because Leo wants attention. He is okay. wanting attention very, very much right now. <laughs> um, so if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a preacher this week, uh, go preach with power and grace and love. And I pray the Holy Spirit is all up in your service, bringing hearts to Christ, giving you power as you teach and preach. And uh, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.